Today's guest is Philip Cunliffe. Philip is Associate Professor of International Relations at the Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction, University College London. Until July 2022, he was Senior Lecturer at the University of Kent after having joined in 2009. His expertise is in peacekeeping, military intervention, liberal conflict management and international order. Philip has recently published a co-authored book entitled Taking Control, Sovereignty and Democracy After Brexit, with co-authors George Hall, Professor Lee Jones and Professor Peter Ramsey. The book, commissioned and published by Polity, has its origins in a network called The Full Brexit that started work in June 2018. The four authors were among the founders of the network that brings together academics, journalists and others who supported leaving the European Union but were not conservative Eurosceptics. At the heart of the book is the insight that leaving the EU was a necessary but insufficient step for building democratic sovereignty. The book first presents an analysis of the pathologies of EU member statehood before explaining how leaving the EU still leaves a void in democratic political representation before setting out some proposals for building a sovereign democratic nation. Welcome to Philip. When a recent poll suggested about two-thirds of Britain's voters have no confidence in the existing parties, and that's a level of political alienation and detachment which I think is unprecedented in modern times. So that we see sovereignty as an integral part of democracy, whereas many of the other analysts of post-democracy, I think they're more, more sympathetic to the seeing the solution as a cosmopolitan reformulation of democracy. We see that as, in fact, uh, the cure being worse than the poison in some ways. It's difficult to think that it would be legitimate to uh, call any group in society to openly kind of deride a minority or any group in society as pigs so openly. I think it gives an indication of just the level of vitriol and intensity that was directed against the majority in the aftermath of the Brexit vote. Welcome, Philip. It's a really great pleasure to be able to speak to you about your book. Can we begin by asking a question that we ask all of our guests? What led you to write the book and what are the main messages you intend to communicate? So thank you for having me on. I'm also delighted to be here and to have the opportunity to have the discussion. So the book grew out of a um, a network that all of the authors were involved with called The Full Brexit, and it was set up. We set it up along with some others in the wake of the 2016 referendum. It came a few a few years later. Um, and so the book is, in a way, a distillation of the author's experience of being involved in uh, the politics around Brexit and particularly around um, fighting back against the prospect of a second referendum. And so we wanted to distill, at once kind of distill the political experience and the, what we um, what we took to be the political insights of that experience, which was, I think, exceptionally intense and instructive um, and a tremendous kind of break in the politics, in British politics, and in, I'd even say in European politics for a generation, perhaps. So we wanted to distill the insights of that, but also to adjust and indeed rectify some of the limitations that we saw in the public understanding of the European Union and Britain's relationship to it, both with respect to um, those who are pro-EU and those who are anti-EU. So it was an intervention to attempt to reshape some of those, some of those uh, what we took the deficiencies of public understanding around Brexit, but by way of hoping to lay the ground for what a post-Brexit politics would look like in a Britain that had formally detached itself from the European Union, and that was trying to, you know, uh, still is trying to establish itself on a new footing and to carve out a new political space for itself. Great. So that's that, that's about the the motivation. I mean, what are, what are the main messages that you you consider that the book does um, does communicate? A few things. So I'd say first of all that the European Union generally misunderstood as something that is external to its member states, rather than as something which is in fact grows out from dynamics that are internal to its member states. And so, whatever we see is the kind of the layer or those aspects of the European Union that are kind of layered on top of its member states, rather they should be seen as things that are continuous with the internal structure of member states themselves. So to see 
the EU is a continuity with um, the domestic social and political structure of the states concerned, firstly. And secondly, to think about and to offer a model for what Britain outside of the European Union um, could be and whether or not uh, seeking to establish Britain as a mem- as a nation state rather than as a member state. So to substitute a new model of independent nation statehood for the model of member statehood, which has dominated British and European politics for the last 30 years. Thank you very much, Philip. You mentioned it, um, the link between the misunderstanding around EU and what it is. I mean, the book starts with the insight that membership of the EU has, has led to a decay in Britain's representative democracy. Perhaps could you tell us a little of what led you to that to that conclusion or those insights? I mean, it's far from, you know, it's not a, we don't make the claim, we don't claim that it's an original stance, the view that representative democracy has decayed in the Western world. I mean, it's something which is observed by many people, um, you know, people like, I suppose, Colin Hay would be one, um, but there are plenty of others talking about the decay of uh, mass politics. We also, I mean, draw on the work of uh, the late Irish political scientist, Peter Mayer, who kind of memorably um distilled and captured a lot of this, the insights of this literature uh, in terms of ruling the void, as he put it, which is to say that you have these political structures that are now suspended above societies that have drawn into themselves and citizens that have drawn into private life. And so there's this void between governments and governed. And so we took this concept and this language and drew on it to frame our arguments. And so in that, to that extent, it's not especially um, our claims. We don't make, you know, we don't make any claims that it's original, but they were borne out, I think, through the process of the attempt to withdraw from the European Union. Just how detached and remote so many of the political parties and their members and the political elites more broadly were from the wider population. Again, I think this was borne out by the um, referendum itself just the shock that it um, precipitated among Britain's establishment. That was very evident at the time to anyone who was living through it, who was in Britain at the time. It came as a kind of, it was experienced as a kind of cataclysm almost, not only political, but also social, ideological. And so that experience of the vote of the plebiscite as a cataclysm, I think, spoke to that degree of detachment and social atomization. And it's been borne out since. Um, I think, I mean, the polls, one of the re- one a recent poll suggested about two thirds of Britain's voters have no confidence in the existing parties. And that's a level of political alienation and detachment, which I think is unprecedented in modern times. Or if we think of the Tory party recently, um, with their tremendous parliamentary majority that they achieved in 2019, and at the time, it almost looked as if they were on the brink of some kind of um, you know, historic realignment, that they'd managed to construct a new alliance based on Tory voters, traditional Tory voters in the southeast, attached to the so-called Red Wall voters, former Labour constituencies in the North and the Midlands. And this looked as if the Tories had cracked a new political model for the 21st century in Western states, that you could build alliance of the old working class and the old middle classes and that this alignment would see see them through the 21st century. You know, the Tory party had indicated its capacity to adapt once again. And here we are a few years later, if the polls are to be believed, on the brink of the Labour Party coming back from an astonishing defeat um, to sweep back into power. So this suggests a level of electoral political volatility that I, I think speaks to the degree of detachment, that there is simply far fewer um, you could, politicians and parties can't take voters as solid blocks that can be relied upon to be brought in in support of their policies and their views and traditional political party alignments. So I think both in terms of the kind of historic decay of politics in the West, which is well established in in the literature, as well as the recent experience of British politics, all of that bears out um, our claims about Britain's political traditions being entirely exhausted, that they simply don't fit British society as it is in the early 21st century. In your view, could it be proposed here? And there's a decay in political traditions that presumably starts a long time ago. I wondered when you would would date this to. 
So that's very important because you know Brexit is part of a wider phenomenon. It seems to me um, that you're arguing. The second point is is a kind of I mean part of part of the account you you present is um, something that's sort of familiar to me from from colleague and friend Alan Finlayson, um, who I think would also sort of diagnose a kind of failure and alienation and a sort of distancing between elite and politics. But I wouldn't necessarily think that he'd reach the same conclusions as you about about Brexit. I just wondered if you could say something about the first two. Maybe the first one is a bit bit more interesting, but, you know. So, uh, I mean, I suppose, again, the claim, I suppose, uh, I think all of my co-authors would agree. I mean, we would generally root the sources of this political alienation to the post-Cold War period. That period kind of commonly understood as the end of history, as per Francis Fukuyama's term, um, when you have the end of kind of ideological the ideological polarities associated with the Cold War, um, the growing competition for the center ground, uh, ideological uh, or rather ideologies kind of fade and uh, government is understood in more technocratic and centrist terms. Uh, you have less competition at a very basic level for votes and it's understood that uh, voters have nowhere to go essentially. Um, There was the famous kind of remark by Peter Mandelson, the new Labour grandee, who said, you know, he kind of took for granted the voters, old working class voters of Labour by saying they've got nowhere else to go. And so in that period, it seems to me, which is to say, you know, from the dying days of the major government, perhaps up until 2008, 2010, with the great financial crash, you have this period uh, of deeply rooted political decay that lays the ground for the subsequent wave of uh, electoral volatility and the populist insurrections that we've seen in the West, but also throughout the wider world. I think that's when I would date this, uh, the origins of this kind of period of the decay of representative democracy. And again, it coincides with you know these wider processes, globalization, uh, international integration, and so on, that are by no means unique to Britain or even to, even to Europe. On the second issue, my co-authors and I that are different with um, other kind of other scholars, uh, commentators and observers who have a similar analysis of the decay of democracy over this period, our difference is that we see sovereignty in a different light. So that we see sovereignty as an integral part of democracy, whereas many of the other analysts of post-democracy, I think they're more, more sympathetic to the seeing the solution as a cosmopolitan reformulation of democracy. So to strengthening uh, various supranational and perhaps subnational modes of political and popular engagement as the path to democratic renewal. Whereas we see that as in fact uh, weakening the prospects for democracy and in fact uh, uh, the cure being worse than the poison in some ways. Interesting. I just wanted to to ask you a bit about um, uh, that conceptual or that understanding that uh, is at the heart of the book of sovereignty, uh, and in particular, what, what is what you you call, I think, a left sovereignist case for Brex for Brexit, and perhaps what a left sovereignist approach to Brexit following the vote might have looked like. I don't think it would surprise anyone reading the book that all the authors are, you know, uh, broadly aligned and what would be understood classically as the left. Um, that said, though, we don't frame our politics or our political prescriptions, at least, in any way that I think would kind of meaningfully fall in a clear left-right divide, at least as currently understood um, in terms of our political prescriptions, which I think we'll come to and to talk about a bit in due course, but just to say, for instance, you know, we talk about um, proportional representation as a solution, which is something generally associated with uh, the center or the, the political center. We're sympathetic to the cause of Irish reunification, and we um, are happy to kind of reorganize the union, something which is associated traditionally with the Republican left in British in British politics. But at the same time, we're um, supportive of uh, re- revitalizing Britain's nuclear deterrent um, and the new politics of uh, of uh, independence through uh, possession of nuclear weapons. And again, that's something which is more associated with the right. So none of our prescriptions, I think, easily fit into uh, a left-right politics, at least as it currently structures uh, British public debate or as, le- as it's inherited from the past. So that said, um, I suppose what we understand to be sovereignism is this idea of understanding that sovereignty is absolutely critical, which is to say a central 
uh, a central focus of public authority and uh, locus of political power, that it is this which makes political power visible and therefore makes it easier to hold power to account, and that it also means that democratic decisions are meaningful, that it gives public choices force um, and power, and that it's a guarantee, a formal guarantee at least, that uh, political decisions will be enacted. And so for those reasons, we think that sovereignty is vital to democracy. And you can have sovereignty without democracy, but you cannot have democracy without sovereignty. So that is uh, one of the core pillars of the argument that if we are to have democracy, then we need sovereignty. So it's sovereignist to that extent. Um, I should perhaps also, by way of clarification, I should say, I mean, the argument that we put is not a lexit argument. Often, oftentimes, um, those on the left who were supportive of Brexit were called laxators, and the phrase was, I think, originally um, was originally coined by Owen Jones, the Guardian, former Guardian journalist. And we never saw ourselves as laxators, even though um, the four co-authors of the book and many of the people involved in the full Brexit network came from the left. And we never saw ourselves as laxators because we were concerned that Lexit made the condition of secession from the European Union conditional. It was understood as something that was only valuable if um, it happened on terms that were set by the left, whereas we were wanting to make the case that it was valuable in and for itself because it opened up the path to democratic accountability and that you could have the exercise of democracy and greater polit political contestation would be more meaningful outside of the European Union and that this was valuable in itself. And therefore, we didn't restrict ourselves to, to being lexiters. So to that extent, I would clar you know, I would wish to distinguish the sovereignist case that we tried to make in the book from a left case for Brexit. That's a very interesting distinction. And I think this is the point where it, it does make sense to um to ask you a bit about um one of the sources you rely upon. You um, you already mentioned Peter um, Peter Mayer, but you also uh, you also talked about a bit about Chris um, Bickerton, and I, I wondered. I mean, you know, many of us on the EU, you know, Chris Bickerton's book on on membership, the states of member states, and distinction between being a member state and a sovereign state, very very well. But not everyone, not everyone in the in the community found it a very persuasive argument that the um, EU controls a limited set of policy areas. That it exerts a um, a small um, it only has a small budget. So I wondered how what what you find so persuasive about the sort of Bickerton notion of uh, member statehood. Speaking for myself, at least, what gripped me about the um, about the Bickerton thesis is that it made um, it kind of snapped these contrastive manacles. So in discussions of the European Union, and I think this was both evident in the scholarly debates and also in the public debates, they kind of mirrored each other to a certain degree, um, even if the political polarities differed. Though on the one hand, um, you know, it was either kind of supranationalism, the idea that the EU was this, you know, kind of uh, super state in the making would be the kind of the crude public version of it. Or on the other hand, it was a mashup of various national projects, I suppose, which would be closer to in the scholarly version. Or in the, I suppose the public version of that would be that the EU is nothing more than kind of a French project or um, a German project by other means, kind of German hegemony, disguised German hegemony. And I suppose the scholarly version of that might be the Moravchik idea of uh, liberal intergovernmentalism, perhaps, or, or maybe Alan Millward's kind of thesis, an understanding of European integration. And so what appealed to me was the conceptual elegance of the Bickerton thesis and that it snapped the contrastive manacles. It didn't force you either into being, you know, seeing all of European integration purely in supranational terms and then ignoring all the clear evidence that it was also kind of uh, very much in line with various national political projects. But it also didn't force you into being seeing the European Union purely as something which was driven by national priorities, that it genuinely had independent developments um, at a supranational level that couldn't weren't reducible simply to national level politics. And so it seemed to me it made it provided a way of conceptually assimilating and integrating 
evidence from both sides of the ledger, as it were. The point about, say, there being a very, uh, you know, the fact of it, the EU formally only being having purview over relatively uh, circumscribed areas of policy, or the fact that the budget is so small by comparison to national level budgets, that seems to me consistent with the claim, because the claim is that it's a transformation of the state itself, rather than something which is bolted onto the state from the outside. So I found it persuasive in that, um, just in a very basic sense, that it reconciled uh, these various perspectives on the EU, each one of which seemed to have a partial view of the truth, but a less than complete picture. And it seemed to me to provide a much more accurate and integrated account of the dynamics of European integration, which uh, synthesized the evidence both at the supranational level and at the national level. The sort of you know, dichotomous views that you describe, I mean, I suppose this, 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 this also explains your um, why you know, the strength of the critique you offer of Thatcherite right, Euroscepticism. Yeah, we were, um, I think the, uh, I mean, the politics of Brexit in the UK is unfortunately very, you know, very clearly associated with um, Thatcherite Euroscepticism. And the critique that we offer of that is, I mean, apart from the kind of the sheer delusion of the idea of Singapore on Thames as a viable model for British political economy, but also for British voters. I mean, you know, very few British voters are even aware of, let alone supportive of the idea of a Singapore on Thames model. It just speaks to how little Thatcherite Eurosceptics understood their own politics because what strikes me about Thatcherism is that um, the single market was very much a Thatcherite project, as Margaret Thatcher herself saw it as a way of uh, consolidating and kind of anchoring a national politics of the free market by building it out across Europe. It was a continental vision of Thatcherism. But then, you know, notoriously, she recoiled from European integration with the Bruges speech and denounced it as a kind of federalist plot. But that was only to, it seemed to me, me to indicate that she uh, didn't understand the contradictions of her own politics, because if there was to be a single market at the continental level, that would require various elements of regulatory alignment and regulatory oversight and control at the supranational level to which she was so opposed. And so Thatcherite Euroscepticism was always caught in a bind, that they supported the extension of uh, free markets uh, around the world and in Europe but then recoiled from the logical consequences of that economic integration, which required institutions such as uh, the ECJ, which they ended up being opposed to. So they were caught in binds, which they've been unable to resolve. And these contradictions, it seems to me, have ultimately undercut Thatcherite Euroscepticism as a viable political project. Can I take you back a little to the to the vote and to what happened uh, post vote? So you we're talking about some of the politics there. The book goes into quite a lot of detail and, and analysis of of what happened um, post Brexit. So uh, immediately after the vote, and then the, the whole period up until quite recently. And I wondered, I mean, particularly you spend quite a lot of time on on debunking some of these narratives uh, that, uh, that around Leave voters. Um, in in quite a compelling way. So perhaps you'd like to say a few words on that. Yeah, so um, anyone who was uh, in Britain at the time, I assume uh, many, many of you, many of our listeners, I think they'll remember just the intensity and the vitriol of um, the period, both in the run-up to the vote and afterwards. And one of the things I think that was most striking, though, was the um, contempt with which leave voters in particular were held particularly given that as you know they were the majority in the in the outcome of the referendum and i mean perhaps the most uh, notorious example of this was the frequency with which the word gammon was used i mean it was something associated with the left it was referring supposedly to the uh, uh, the kind of the ruddy or pinky complexion average middle-aged uh, white man who voted for Brexit. And it became a kind of a common staple of public debate. But also I heard it, you know, used kind of very, uh, very indiscriminately and casually by academic colleagues informally. So it wasn't something which was just kind of restricted to um, social media spats or to Navarra media. It was something which I think achieved a certain common parlance in middle-class debates on um, on Brexit. And, you know, I mean, gammon is uh, pork, you know, it's pig meat. It was people, people were calling the voters pigs. It's difficult to think that it would be legitimate to uh, call any 
group in society to openly kind of deride a minority or any group in society as pigs so openly. I think it gives an indication of just the level of kind of um, vitriol and intensity that was directed against the majority in the aftermath of the Brexit vote. So we wanted to make sure that um, that was... Uh, you know, kind of recorded, and that all the slanders that were heaped on Brexit voters, that they were all motivated by imperial nostalgia or um, racism and xenophobia, that this simply didn't stack up with the um, with the evidence and was always very dubious. And I mean, there are plenty of, um, you know, serious kind of uh, serious and established scholars who will go on about how empire nostalgia and visions of the Raj and so on motivated British voters as if voters in Newcastle or, um, you know, Rust Belt places, deindustrialized places in the UK were thinking about the Raj when they put their ballots in the box in 2016. So we were concerned to ensure that those um, that those myths were exposed for what they are because they've had a lingering and pernicious influence and in afterlife in British politics, which is uh, poisonous to democracy. It's poisonous to the idea of uh, democratic compact and poisonous to the idea of majoritarianism, which is obviously what we're trying to defend in the book. Yeah, thank you very much. You, you, I mean, I think we can all agree, uh, for those seasoned and just everyone who's been following British politics, being in the UK, that the, the level of, well, the, the public debate and, and um, is particularly acrimonious, the, the, as you said, the, the poison lingers. Uh, and I wondered, um, you know, how 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 that can be. I mean, going forward, is this is this not? I mean, a direct consequence also of, of this vote. And how does does one build a strong democratic sovereignty, a majoritarian one? But how do we build it on the back of uh, of such an acrimonious debate? It's a difficult it's a difficult question um, because obviously uh, one of the strengths of democracy is precisely kind of pluralism and contention and the um, possibility of uh, having intense disputes over um, policy, over outcomes, over vision, political, ideological visions and so on. Um, so I think um, and I think it's uh, it's. I think the reason that it, it part the reason that it's so acrimonious and has become so acrimonious is because the principle of losers consent was called into question in the aftermath of the um of the Brexit referendum. So it's by no means you know it's um I think I mean the uh, the level of xenophobia sorry the level of vitriol that was heaped onto Brexit voters was so intense and great I was astounded by it and shocked by it. It's not to say that there aren't you know that the the consequence I think of um of calling into question the vote of saying that the voters were kind of morally incapable of understanding these decisions or that they were um, led astray by Russian bots or that they were so addled and corrupted by demagogic prom promises led by F um, Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. All of these various claims were used to undermine the idea of ordinary citizens being able to judge um, basic constitutional matters and to hold the decision in their hands. And so I think the push for a second referendum and undermining the retrospective undermining of the outcome of 2016 brought us very close to essentially scrapping the idea of losers' consent in Britain. And I think we we're in a very dangerous place. So I think the fact that Brexit happened, despite the uh, intensity of hostility towards uh, towards the vote and the attempt to bring through a second referendum at various points, it seems to me that that rescued the principle of losers' consent, the fact that we managed to enact the vote, the fact that there were um, sufficient numbers in the wider population at large, who even though, and I mean, these, I speak, you know, this is, I know people who are in this position, both friends and family members, who even though they were, you know, they voted for Remain in the 2016 referendum, and they were very skeptical of all the promises that were made by Brexiters, they nonetheless understood that democracy was at stake if we um, had had a second referendum or had uh, undermined or overturned the original referendum. There were variations, though, quite quite large variations in the in the patterns of voting uh, in the referendum. But just going back to the the, the variation, um, so places like Scotland, Northern Ireland, had a majority to 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 remain in the UK, um, and this this also contributed to quite a lot of 
the, the political debate uh, following um, the vote. Um, but I mean, and I'll tie it into what the book puts forward, that there's no space, there's, you don't foresee uh, the possibility uh, of a role for the devolved nations in in uh, in this um, rebirth of, of democratic sovereignty post post vote. It's certainly true that the variation among the constituent nations of the United Kingdom um, added to the sense of hostility and dislocation in the aftermath of the 2016 referendum. But, you know, I mean, by the same token, it was uh, by the fact that it was a constitutional plebiscite, it was a situation of one person, one vote, rather than the first past the post system that has uh, dominated national elections in the past. And so there was a basic political equality to the vote. And the fact that, um, you know, Scotland had voted to remain in the UK in the previous um, referendum on independence that was held in Scotland prior to the Brexit referendum meant, obviously, then that Scottish voters were, um, by the fact that they'd voted to remain in the UK, they were held by the vote of the majority in the UK as a result of the Brexit referendum. So that, you know, the basic questions of political legitimacy didn't seem to me to be ultimately controversial, even if there was understandable disappointment in various places around the UK as, as the result of the outcome. In terms of our prescriptions, um, from our understanding, the what we see is part of the development of member statehood is devolution. And this is something which is seen across um, Western Europe in particular over the 1970s and 1980s, but and also in you know later and into the 20 early 21st century, that um, you have the development of these subnational political structures, which is a way essentially of diluting the role and capacity of central government. And so we see it as part of the process through which national democratic power has been diffused. And so to that extent, we don't see the devolution in the UK as something which has really empowered voters, but rather exacerbated this uh, potential for democratic accountability and responsibility to be diffused. And I think that's been borne out by recent politics. If we think of, you know, voters in, or at least politicians in Scotland blame Westminster, and politicians in Westminster blame the SNP. And so between the political blame shifting between Westminster and Holyrood, we end up with a situation where the voters of Scotland aren't effectively served. So as part of our prescription, what we propose as part of a project of democratic renewal at the end of the book is to abolish devolution. But as a quid quo pro, to um, institutionalize proportional representation in British politics. And so that would be the political offer to those voters who might be wary of abandoning the kind of devolved institutions that they have. They would gain greater representation through PR, as opposed to the first-past-the-post system that has served old Labour voters in Scotland and Wales so poorly over the last uh, 20 years or so. You've mentioned there just a few of the traditional parties of the UK. Well, a few, there's only two, Labour and the Conservatives, uh, uh, the Conservative Tory party, um, and now the SNP. I mean, you, you in the, the book argues, though, that uh, existing political parties cannot manage the building of, of a, de a democratic nation. They, they have been the architects of the hollowing out of this uh, of, of democratic sovereignty. I wonder what type of parties or leadership would be required post-Brexit. Is there a role at all for existing political parties? I can't, uh, given the way the existing political parties have uh, behaved in the last few years, um, and given their run, you know, their general records of mismanagement and incompetence, it seems to me that very little can be expected from them. Perhaps one or two individual parliamentarians or members of parties around the country, but in general, as political structures, they seem to me to be um, very basically incapable of uh, channeling popular will or of shaping uh, popular hopes and aspirations. And that seems to me to be true across the board, whether Labour or Tory or Lib Dem or voters for the SNP or whoever they might be. So, I mean, that seems to me, you know, what we say in the book is it's consistent with our analysis. And as much as all of these parties are part of this cartel structure, as Peter Mayer called it, uh, whereby parties kind of basically enter into these tacit agreements to rule over the void, where there's very little political competition. They become, rather than being uh, representatives of civil society, the bridgeheads of civil society in the state, they effectively become 
representatives of the state confronting civil society over the void, across the void. And so we don't see that existing political parties are fit for purpose. And as part of a project of renewal, we have a set of proposals at the end of the book, which grow out of our analysis and are intended to uh, wipe the slate clean of existing political parties and to allow civil society to express itself better politically by ending corporate uh, funding of political parties by, as I mentioned already, institutionalizing proportional representation as opposed to first past the post. This would break apart existing political parties, I think, both Labour and the Tories. It would give greater range of expression to um, society in the UK. We ex also propose an expanded House of Commons. So again, that electors would have greater representation and also um, removing all um, restrictions on political expression. So all of this, this raft of uh, suggestions would, we think, it would be necessary rather than sufficient for political renewal of uh, the country emerging out of the European Union. Thank you, Philip. I mean, these are prescriptions for how um, civil society presumably um, not just remobilizes, but how, how it's able to, uh, to articulate sort of interest in, in a new kind of way. But and I, but I just wondered about the sort of the, the the sort of constitution of political power in this in the world you envisage. I mean, how centralized is it? What form does it take? Our vision is to centralize political power more. I mean, I think that's the, um, I think it's prognosis, I suppose, the kind of prescription, which uh, I think it's perhaps it sounds, it sounds suspicious coming out of an era in which we're used to power being so diffuse. But our analysis makes the point that precisely so many of our problems and our social and political ills come from the fact that political power is diffuse, that it is not centralized, that it makes it less accountable that it makes it less visible, that it makes it much more difficult to enact, um, to address popular grievances and to give people a sense that they have a stake in the functioning of their own societies, that they have control. So our prescription is precisely to centralize political power and to do this by renewing the political system through PR, by abolishing the House of Lords so that Britain would become a unicameral democracy by expanding, as we said, expanding the number of representatives. So all of this is intended to give public power, more authority, more prominence, more visibility. And by doing that, to invite the voters back into politics, to energize and excite public engagement and interest in political life, because people will realize that their decisions matter in a way, um, and their choices matter in a way that has not been true over the last 30 years of neoliberalism, where um, there has been, I mean, the various kind of uh, devolution, uh, the hemorrhaging away of power to independent regulatory agencies and flangos and independent central banks and the confiscation of power at the supranational level. All of these all of these things have meant politics is, is uh, less significant in people's lives. And that is, at least by way of our analysis, uh, that is the problem. So if we are to resolve that problem, uh, it seems logical that we should put more power into a center. And that center is the sovereign state. Um, so that it be empowered democratically, that it be seen as more legitimate, that it be given more power. If I can follow up on that, I mean, to me, it sounds like those are um, institutional answers to something that's slightly different. So creating a, a space for a debate, for public engagement that would necessarily come from changes to institutional setups, some of which, such as centralization of, of political power and so on, can be a bit, uh, well, as you say, we're no longer used to, to that kind of a, a setup. I mean, is it not placing too much emphasis on the on the power of of the I mean they are lived they have to live these these institutions are also the products of society's own compromises their historical tra trajectories no so indeed yeah no I mean and I wouldn't say that our proposals are by any means um complete what would be required for a vigorous kind of new politics to emerge from all the wreckage and rubble of um of uh, the decay of 20th century politics that we still seem to live with and have inherited. If they're not sufficient, I think they're certainly necessary. So that there will be no political renewal without the revamping our central institutions. And if our problem is one of political sclerosis, which is at least what the claim that we make, which is to say 
that the vessels, you know, the vessels, the veins, they don't pump. They don't pump blood. Uh, they don't. They're not large enough or healthy enough to channel political will, to channel um, public dissatisfaction, to channel public aspirations and hopes. They need to be broadened out and they need to be made healthy. And so part of that, I think, is by institutional renewal. And I think this is borne out uh, by the Brexit vote itself. Because what was so striking about the 2016 vote, that there were about a million and a half extra voters in the constitutional vote on Brexit who hadn't voted previously and didn't return in subsequent uh, general elections. And so that seemed to me to speak to the fact that uh, at the national level, I think ordinary voters intuited that they had a very serious matter at hand. They had a very serious constitutional matter at hand and that it mattered more than previous general elections had, that they had a meaningful choice in a way they hadn't really had in, you know, kind of debates between David Cameron and Ed Miliband or whatever it was, you know, they understood this was a qualitatively different kind of politics. And so it does seem to me that there is the possibility for drawing people into democratic discussion and debate and choice when it becomes clear to them that their choices are going to be meaningful and that they will be enacted. And so institutional renewal inevitably has to be part of that process. But as you say, it's not a it's not a complete solution, but it is a necessary part of any solution. I can understand the the, the, the argument for um a, a more powerful state and uh for, for greater greater centralized authority. I mean however it seems to me that you know one of one of the the real sort of failures of, of governance over the last 10, 20, 30 years in the UK has been at local level. And you know, things interest you know local people, you know, likes going out at nine, nine o'clock in the evening, social care, social housing. Yeah, there's a very, very long long list. I wondered that, that, that doesn't seem to be to play a, a very strong part in your in the suggestions and prescriptions that you have for a post-Brexit era, I just wondered, wondered, you know, why not? Because I think there is a there's a real consensus amongst uh, many people about the, um, the, you know, the problems of local government and the um, constraints imposed by um, the centre on them. No, indeed. And I think we would all, myself and my co-authors, would all be sympathetic to arguments to reinvigorate local democracy and local government to ensure that councils have, um, have greater, you know, say, greater power, um, than they do at the moment. And that would be consistent with our argument for centralizing power, not in the sense of centralizing in Westminster, but centralizing democratic power. So ensuring that uh, you have you know democratic uh, democratic will that is enacted at the local level. And indeed, you know, I mean, kind of undercutting undercutting local government has been part of neoliberal politics for the last thirty years. It was uh, the Thatcher government consistently sought to outflank. Labour-led uh, city councils and so on. And so the taking away of democracy, the confiscation of democracy at the local level is an important part of the picture. We wanted to keep our focus on the national level in the book, partly for reasons of space, but also partly because the questions that are dealt with in the book are national questions and the challenges that confront the country are national ones, first and foremost, it seems to me. The things that matter to um, that matter to voters uh, decayed infrastructure, say that you mentioned, cost of living crisis, uh, energy, uh, Britain's kind of economics, wages, immigration, the NHS. These are all national questions, first and foremost. So it's not to say that there are, that local politics doesn't play a won't play a part in a process of national democratic renewal. But there's also the danger that local politics is seen as a solution to national problems, and that seems to me um, to get the to get it the wrong way around and. Um, that seems to me the risk at the moment in the kind of uh, the Starmerite vision where localism is being kind of offered as a substitute for national control. So while I think, I mean, there has to be a role for uh, restoring greater powers at the local level in terms of, I'd be happy to see, speaking for myself, I'd be happy to see councils and more empowered democratically, and that that would be consistent with um, concentrating democratic power. Nonetheless, there has to be this national level renewal, I think. Thank you, Philip. I just, I just think listening that I, I think there's a lot about yeah, um, accountability, uh, where democratic power lies, the solutions for, for of interest to, to citizens. But uh, just something that was perhaps not mentioned or, or touched upon. It's like who actually delivers that for the citizens, and you know what what role for 
for the civil service? What role for the agents uh, of government in all this? Part of the this uh, the lassitude of the neoliberal state is that you have this impossibly kind of complex set of agencies that whose relations, interrelations with each other are very opaque, and that the neoliberal state that we've inherited, um, even as, you know, I mean, very clearly as the, after having left the European Union, that it's an agent, that it's a state that sees itself as a regulatory one. So it kind of shapes the context within which decisions are made, um, and it can kind of mold incentives but it doesn't actually have any um, capacity to enact decisions itself. Um, so, I mean, one kind of local example here in Kent, for instance, is uh, the sewage. I live in Canterbury and um, uh, on the local coast, there's a constant problem with the Thames water and the water companies are pumping sewage into the sea. The central government responds by enforcing, um, you know, fining them for uh, for this infraction. And so that is the classic neoliberal regulatory state. But the companies obviously build the expectation of the fines into their operating plans. And so they basically they absorb the fines, but continue to pump the sewage into the sea. And that is a neoliberal regulatory state. It's a state which kind of tries to alter behavior, but is ultimately very weak in terms of what it actually does. The kind of state that we would like to see would be the state that would simply nationalize the companies and stop pumping sewage into the sea. And so that would be the difference, I think, in terms of um, in terms of the kind of state that we would want to see. So it would require greater it would require greater state capacity. Um, civil servants, agencies that are not kind of held at arm's length, not quangos, not independent regulatory bodies, one of the um, post-Brexit uh, policies enacted by Johnson was to set up this uh, British Trade Authority, which is, again, kind of an arm's length independent body to oversee Britain's trade. All of these attempts to kind of keep things not in-house, but to devolve and outsource, that seems to me to be um, the problem. So bring things in-house and bring them under um, the democratic purview and control of an expanded and invigorated parliament. That would seem to me to be the solution to um, our problems. Thank you, Philip. And I just wanted to finish off with the, the book, and we've talked about it at length, focuses principally on Great Britain, the UK too, but Great Britain. But it, you do also, the, you, you and your co-authors also seek to provide insights for how other uh, Western European democracies might follow suit, exit the European Union. I just wondered, you know, the current context is one where there are a number of countries trying to join the European Union. There's quite a lot of analysis that's been done on the fact that the Brexit vote has, has actually led to a strengthening of pro-European uh, sentiments uh, amongst the 27 member states. So I wondered what are the lessons that you would put forward at this stage from the UK's uh, decision to leave or vote to leave the European Union? Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't. I can understand. I can understand, for instance, why um, so many countries, uh, you know, in Eastern and Central Europe, not least Ukraine itself, obviously see the European Union as an attractive, um, as an attractive vantage, something that they would that seems attractive from the outside. But as a result of the analysis that we offer in the book, we would say that it would nonetheless be mistaken and misguided, and that what is on offer actually will not be the solution to the problems confronting countries with fragile governments and you know social instability and political pressures both inside and without and that rather than seeking to strengthen themselves by international integration it would be better to strengthen the vertical linkages between state and society so cultivating the horizontal linkages of member statehood will exacerbate the problems of political fragility political illegitimacy and better in, instead as i say to kind of think about strengthening internal national coherence and that isn't um I, you know i'm not saying that to suggest it's an easy thing um or an obvious thing but nonetheless it seems to me to be born out the politics of the last 10 years, that it would nonetheless be better for uh, countries in Europe to seek to think of themselves as being more politically self-sufficient. You know, not to say, not uh, economic autarky or the idea that they all stand alone and are, don't need support, international support, but at least greater political self-sufficiency would seem to me to be better in terms of democracy, not least, but also just in terms of political effectiveness. I mean, if you see what's happening at the moment, um, with uh, Giorgia Maloney in Italy, you know, she's now blaming the, the left in the European Union for prevent, preventing her from having an immigration policy. And so we see the same kind of, even with populist governments, um, right-wing populist governments in power, 
they're resorting to the same policy, the same things for which they accused um, their opponents when they are in the opposition of doing. And they're doing the same thing, which is shifting responsibility about and using the European Union, using the European Union as a way to avoid accountability to their own citizens. Um, so we... We're confident, you know, the specific ways in which this process would play out would obviously vary greatly from country to country. Um, but we're confident in the idea that democratic sovereignty, democratic national sovereignty is the right solution for countries throughout Europe. And indeed, I would go as far as to say throughout the world. Um, so many of the problems that we have of uh, global cooperation are problems of legitimacy. So if we are to have better cooperation to resolve our collective challenges that we face at the international level, at the global level, it will require more solid legitimacy, more solid support. And that seems to me to be um, that that would be strengthened by having um, greater democratic input. And for that, you need national sovereign states. So our prognosis is an international is an internationalist one at the end of the day, sovereignist but internationalist. The, the way to enhance international cooperation is to have democratic sovereignty. Your book is 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 radical in a number of different ways. I mean, particularly in your prescriptions towards the end, and uh, you know, you argue, for example, for for leaving uh, NATO and um, a host of other things that might might surprise some readers. But what I what I'm sort of curious about is, you know, what does international cooperation look like in a world of democratic nations, democratic sovereign nations, in your term? Yeah, it's something which has to be, I mean, I don't think there's an existing template for it. What strikes me is so many of our um, institutions that are taken for granted as the paradigms for international cooperation are ones that are inherited from the middle of the 20th century, NATO, the United Nations, the European Union, for instance, and that were revamped in the interim. And so you have these structures which are very different, which have been kind of remolded in all sorts of different ways, and they look very different from the context in which they were devised. And so it seems to me starting with a clean slate would be would be much better in many ways. And so we argue for Brexiting from NATO, from I mean, for not least for the reasons that NATO is in our view, at least, caused so many, um, you know, has precipitated so much conflict and is so opposed to the project of national independence, not least as seen in uh, the cases of uh, Libya and also with the bombing of Kosovo in 1999, that it seems those arguments or those, uh, the way in which it's acted against national sovereignty make it opposed to a country that has committed itself to national sovereignty through Brexit. So though, I mean, that argument is the one that we make for exiting NATO. But it seems to me there is no clear template. So if there was to be a new kind of world of international cooperation growing from democratic sovereignty, that's yet to be that's yet to be made. But the prospects would seem to me to be good ones because uh, the function, you know, ex the existing kind of international cooperation is so evidently uh, lacking in legitimacy and is so lack lackluster and problematic and is always coming in for criticism. It seems to me there is, uh, I don't think that there's much to be lost by trying to rejuvenate international cooperation by greater democracy at the national level. Philip, thank you so much for um, for spending the last hour or so with us. So we've greatly enjoyed discussing your book. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me on. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.